Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. Each week we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen. Today I have a very special treat for you. You're going to hear from Henry Nouwen himself in a recording made in April of 1968 at Notre Dame. Monday, January 20th is the third Monday in the month, and in the United States it is a federal holiday called Martin Luther King Day. It honors his birthday and is celebrated across America. Martin Luther King was the chief spokesperson for nonviolent activism in the United States when Henry Nouwen arrived in America. He was deeply inspired by King, and he chose to join the march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. Henry also felt compelled to go to King's funeral in Atlanta, and we have Henry reading the report he gave when he returned to Notre Dame, where he was teaching at the time. I have found Henry's reading of this report so very moving and inspiring. It's not always easy to understand Henry because he has such a thick Dutch accent, but I want to share this with you and encourage you to listen. It gives insights into how inspired Henry Nouwen was by the nonviolent movement led by Dr. King. If you want to read more, we have an article from Nouwen that was posted in the National Catholic Reporter in 1968 called The Death of Dr. King. John Deere also writes about the importance of this peace movement for Henry Nouwen in the book The Road to Peace. There you'll find Henry's insights as he joined King's March to Montgomery. I'm so pleased to be able to offer you this podcast, Henry Nouwen giving his report on the funeral of Dr. Martin Luther King. The death of Martin Luther King. For the first time, it was mentioned between many other things. Did you hear the news? They shot Martin Luther King. We were driving on the Kennedy Expressway leading into Chicago's loop. You mean someone killed him? It was 7.15 p.m. Thursday night, April the 4th. They didn't say. All they said on the radio was that he was shot. The traffic was dense. More cars leaving the city than entering it. It was getting dark. The high-rise buildings celebrated the approaching night like huge Christmas trees covered with millions of flickering lights. And as we turned on Lakeshore Drive, the city reveals itself as a splendid stage on which the great show could start at any moment. The conversation drifted aimlessly from one topic to the other, afraid for a fatal certainty. We did not know each other. He picked me up from O'Hare Airport to bring me to a place where I was supposed to give a lecture on religious development. The sport Dutch now zoomed softly, but faster and faster, on the six-lane high road, diving under many overpasses and catching quickly the green light to the last minute. We are lucky, he said. We will be home in a minute. His wife opened the door. Did you hear anything, he said? Yes. He is dead. There were candles on the table, tastefully arranged for a special dinner. While I took off my coat, I saw the Negro woman sitting in a small kitchen listening to the radio. I said, hello. She smiled. 
bowed a little and said, Hello, sir. She did not cry, she just listened, as if the reporter told her what she already knew for centuries. Should I say something to her? He was killed by a white man, that's all they know, someone said. The woman in the kitchen, sitting on a small wooden stool with hands folded in her lap, seemed the only one who understood and was calm. She did not ask for a word of consolation. She had to prepare a meal and to finish her work. Her silence said, Why are you so upset? Are you strangers in this world? She did not accuse. She served the meal, received her money and left saying, Good night, everybody. Good night. At the lecture, everybody was nice. There were many kinds of drinks and many kinds of food. Young, charming people, a community of friends, vital, vibrant, and curious. We talked and talked, many questions, many answers. What does faith really mean? What makes a Christian different from another man? How should you educate children in religion? Words, concepts, and ideas were tossed around, thrown in different directions, handily maneuvered, maneuvered and played back and forth with intelligence and humor. Martin Luther King was dead, killed, assassinated. Everybody knew it, but nobody wanted to know it. Not yet, at least. It was a cruel but unavoidable delay of grief, which concealed under its cover all the possibilities of destruction, despair, and undirected anger. A delay of the strangling feeling of guilt, which was not unknown from a bitter memory of another murder. And while the rain of words and arguments provided a poor curtain to shield the raw sorrow, there was a cloud of, over the gayness and a false tone in the laughter. But there was hardly an alternative. How often can we allow ourselves to be shocked, thrown off balance and immersed in misery? We are surrounded by a war, burning thousands of people alive, by prisons with unknown hatred and cruelties, by houses filled with poverty and misery. How much can a man allow himself to know? So the party went on, and the subject was religion. We drank a lot of beer, talked about God and his ways, and had coffee for a safe trip home. Next morning I flew to Kansas City. Surrounded by a horrifying world of artificiality, the Braniff plane was orange-painted. The stewardesses, dressed like exotic clowns in blue, purple and gold, handed out to a few people, hardly awake in the early morning, superfluous pamphlets, superfluous food and superfluous compliments. We all hope you have a pleasant flight, Mr. Braniff, and when we dis displease you, by an unfortunate delay, we will give you a dollar for which you can buy a drink on one of our other flights. The passengers didn't pay attention, kept staring at their Chicago Sun-Times with the fat words printed over the front page, King slain in Memphis, Tennessee, to understand what went on in this circus, circus of confusing madness. Driving from Kansas City to Topeka, the reality slowly mastered my awareness. We were killing our prophets and confronted with the bottomless wickedness of our own sins. Between the hollow voices of those who tried to advertise their latest product, it became clear 
that violence was cutting through the thresholds of restraint. Chicago and Washington were burning cities, and the leaders concerned with only one thing, law and order. The repeated reassurance that the police was close to finding the murderer helped to minimalize this human tragedy to a single act of a foolish man. A senseless and useless act, the governor of Alabama declared. But the old spiritual raised again its loaded question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The people that kills its leaders is deaf and blind and terribly afraid to bow its head and look in the poisoned corners of its heart. The many discussions triggered off by this tragic accident kept men away from the only response, penance and reconciliation. In the early Friday morning on April the 5th, one Topekan said to the other, finally they got him, the troublemaker, and they hope that Stokely will be the next. And a man with sorrow in his heart was afraid to utter a word when he overheard the words. He always wanted to be a martyr, at least he got what he asked for. Topeka seemed a cool and indifferent city, shrugging its shoulders and going back to work as if nothing has happened. While the radio, TV, TV and many papers intensified the growing feelings that we had brought ourselves to the edge of a ravine, nobody offered a way to lead these feelings into creative channels. 200 people came to the capital for a memorial service, and only the rabbi seemed to be sensitive to the powerless grief of his audience. The priest and the minister showed fear. Let us follow his example and refrain from violence. Let us keep order and go back to work and fulfill our daily duty. The white Jew understood. The white Christians remained closed for the new warning, except for a short formal letter of condolence by the bishop to be read from the pulpit on Sunday. There was no sign of grief or penance. I said to the priest, I guess you had a special service for Dr. King this morning at your high school. His eyes were dull while he said, sure, we had mass this morning. That's what we have every morning. On Monday, I drove back to Kansas City, feeling like a man who refrains from crying only because there is nobody to receive his tears. Someone had blown a horn and called for peace, but hardly anybody had moved and followed the call. Lent had come. The dark woods showed their white blossoms as signs of a new life. The Kansas fields were green again and the hills covered with many colors, but the heart of man was hardened. Grimacing with this sour joy, that a restless voice shouting and pounding on the doors of conscience was finally silenced and everybody was the same again. Just another spring. A side road led to Fort Leavenworth where I talked with a boy of 19 years old who did not believe in the war. Ten months now he had lived behind bars and this only, and this only had strengthened his conviction that he never could go. He was soft and tender. His small and sharp face, his smiling eyes and thin hands contrasted brutally with his green prisoner's uniform, the heavy walls and the militant atmosphere in which he found himself. The only one he could talk about was him. 
When they heard that he was dead, they doubled the guards, he said. They did not understand that we were just crying, my Afro-American friends and me. Violence and revolt was not in our hearts. We were paralyzed, shocked, disarmed, hopeless and sad. But we felt more together than we ever did. This is no community. But since he died, we came together. How different we might be. Some of us killed. Some just ran away. Some objected against the war for many different reasons. He brought us together, at least for a while. They doubled the guards. They were scared. They did not understand. I was wondering lately if non-violence is really a possibility for me. And I started to doubt. My friends tried to convince me that I was wrong. Revolution seemed the only way. But now I found my face back. His death made me believe again. I know I have to be here and stay here as long as they want me to go to war. And we all started seeing what he meant with non-violence. He knew that he had to give his life for it, but he also knew that it was the only way. I listened to the words of this boy. It seemed as if something started to smile in me. Pilate sent extra guards to the tomb, but he didn't know that he was make, making a fool of himself. And we still don't understand. The boy said, Few of us go to church or belong to any religion, but yesterday we all went for him. We all wanted to pay our respect and to pray, but the priest did not mention his name. And one of us stood up in the middle of the service and said, ain't you going to tell us about him? That's why we are here. And the priest gazed at him, somewhat amazed, and said, I wasn't planning on it. This is just a regular Sunday Mass. Then one prisoner left the chapel and many followed him. And when the mass was over, the priest said, it was better so. There are no Christians, anyhow. The boy told his story without much emotion, as a fact. One of those facts you get used to. And I left him with a strange feeling that he had visited me. I didn't have anything to say. Somewhere he knew. After these hours, we seemed more, which seemed more like a short recollection with a Trappist monk than a prison visit, I soon was swallowed up again by the raging traffic on the many highways crossing over the Kansas and Missouri rivers and plunging in the heart of Kansas City. Surrounded by the hundreds of nervous people trying to catch a plane and the carefully rehearsed friendliness of the air personnel, I forgot for a moment that he was really dead until the empty halls of O'Hare Airport at the midnight hour hit me as a mac mac macabre mausoleum. There was a free seat left on the night plane to Atlanta and I knew that I had to go. During the last four days the sorrow and sadness, the anger and madness, the pains and frustrations had crawled out of the hidden corners of my body and spread all over as a growing disease of restlessness, tenseness and bitterness. I had been fighting it all the way, but now it was clear that only his own people could cure me. Only the anonymity of their crying, shouting, marching and singing 
Only then I would be able to meet the man of Selma again and find some rest in the core of my spastic mind. It was two o'clock in the morning now. The unhospitable splendor of the huge airport pervaded me. A total lack of intimacy made it impossible to keep the mind at rest and think about anything else than the hour of departure. And meanwhile, many people were gathering around the same spot, most black people, a few whites, all restlessly pacing the marble floors, waiting for the same flight through the night. Then my eyes fell on a young white man walking up and down the long corridor, sunk away in deep thoughts, not noticing any of his surroundings. He was long, he was dark and beautiful. His black hair, black turtleneck, black trousers and his slightly bowed head irradiated a feeling of solemn sadness, self-composed and deep. He did not carry a coat, nor any luggage, just two books. He was impressively free and independent. Slowly this man rose out of the shivering atmosphere of nervously waiting people as a point of warmth, rest and safety. I knew he was going where I was going, but he was going differently. And while my eyes followed him, the, anonym the anonymity of the airport dissolved and I felt that life could be personal. In the airplane we talked together softly, hardly realizing the great distance we were covering. Chicago, Cincinnati, Atlanta. I noticed that his two books were about existentialism and theology, but he didn't walk, want to talk about them. He talked about a dead man. I believe in what he had to say, he said, and I just wanted to go to his funeral. Then his thoughts wandered away to the prisons in which he had lived, the cruelties he had seen, the violent madness of men living together behind bars. He spoke about the tears of grown, muscular men, of the moments of tenderness in a society of hatred, of the yearning impulses grabbing blindly for gratification and the crying request for a word of consolation and comfort. I believe in nonviolence, he said. That is where, why I'm here now. But sometimes I wonder if I can keep this face. Dr. King just tried to take Christ's word seriously. He realized that he had to follow him all the way, all the way. And what would happen if he really would do just that? It's a dangerous thing to do. It means not being afraid to die. Death then becomes a small thing, perhaps unavoidable, but not unbearable, just a narrow gate. Well, he didn't say it dramatically, more matter of fact than the content seemed to tolerate. What is your profession, I said with some hesitation. Oh, I'm just an ordinary cab driver. But from the point of view of a cab driver, there's little hope for this world. What I hear from the backseat of my cab is pitiful, sex and violence. That seems to be about all people believe in. You must be a little crazy to believe in Martin Luther King. That's why I go to the funeral, to stay that way. The plane had stopped in Cincinnati and was in its way, on its way to Atlanta. There were long silences between us, in which much of my tension drifted away. And then he said, come, let us sleep. Today is going to be a tiring day. And the darkness covered us totally. 
as the Delta jet dug deeper into the south. In Atlanta, everything was different. A strange happiness and lightness con contrasted all my feelings and expectations. No crying, no sobbing, but smiles and laughter. No dark suits, but white dresses and colorful hats, as if people were on the move to a great festival. Perhaps it was my doubt if I was really welcome at the funeral of the black man which had made me so apprehensive. But there were only friendly questions. Do you need any help? Transportation? Breakfast? A place to stay? I was puzzled by those open faces. Here is a pamphlet which tells you about everything. Go to that man. He will give you a ride to the church. An old school bus took us down into the city, whose modern beauty was still and quiet in the dawn of the new day. At the church there, were a long, there was a long row waiting to pass the body laying in the Ebenezer church. In a small old building a lady took my luggage and said, just put it here in the closet so it won't bother you today, and then she added, why don't you come in and have some breakfast? There was some hesitations, but the problem as always was on my side. I entered a large room where many people were sitting, lively talking with each other, pouring coffee, eating cake and cookies and smiling to me. Sit down, have some coffee with us. I was the only white man. They asked about me. I asked about them. They had come from many far places, traveling in buses and cars for long hours and long miles. They were tired, but they did not show it in their Sunday dresses. It was a special occasion in which joy and happiness merged with sadness and distress. Perhaps it had never been different for them. Few days were pure sorrow, few days were pure joy. It was a celebration for life and for death at the same time. And meanwhile the line had grown. You were still four hours away from the funeral service, but thousands and thousands started already to congregate around the small red brick church. The black Baptist minister standing beside me in the long line, which slowly moved to the entrance of the church, told about the early days in Atlanta. I was still in the seminary, he said, when we started our sit-ins in the restaurant here, and I spent quite some days with Dr. King in the city jail. We were together, a whole bunch of us, and if it weren't for him, it would have been quite different. He was always calm and composed. We prayed together, sang together, and talked together. Thanks to Jack Kennedy, we got out suddenly. He was running for president, and he set us free. I listened to him and did not understand why I was standing with him in this long line. Why wasn't he in the front row of the church as a special guest of honor? But then I knew that thousands in these lines were like him. He knew that he was going to die soon, the minister said. Death didn't mean so much for him. He knew it from the beginning. When I was sitting at the counter with him and the man came in with his revolver, I knew that anything could happen. I was afraid, sure, but then it didn't matter that much. He talked easily and freely, but suddenly stretched out his arms in amazement, looked at me and said, think of it, think of it. Is there anything better than to die for garbage collectors? He died for the poorest, the lowest of this earth. Think of it, think of it. That's what the Lord did. His pupils were wide open, his face shone with happiness and joy. And we had come close to the church entrance, but too late. 
the thousands had multiplied themselves in the last hour and it was hardly possible to move. The doors of the church were closed now. I squeezed myself through the crowd and found a place on the small dike opposite the entrance. The sun became stronger and I was sure that this was going to be a hot day. And as far as I could see, there were people. No or little order or organization. It seems that those invited to attend the service would have a hard time to reach the door. Move back, move back, someone shouted from the roof of a black car, which was stuck in the crowd. Everybody just move one step back. Not much happened. Then everybody took the microphone and said, we are here to honor Dr. King. Let us have respect. Respect for him. Just move back, move back one step out of respect of him. And the crowd said, yes, yes. But it was hardly a chance to move. And everybody hoped to have a chance to see that the dignitaries would arrive in a minute. Let us have respect for Dr. King, shouted a heavy lady, holding her both hands on my shoulder to prevent herself from sliding on the dike. And many agreed with her, but she didn't move. We shall have respect, two men started to sing it on the melody of We Shall Overcome. And within a second, the new song was taken up by the crowd and mixed with much laughter and joy. Everybody joined in and added, We shall move back, we shall now move back. <laughs> Everybody sang loud and convinced, but nobody moved. <laughs> I want to see Jackie, the woman with her hands on my shoulder said. So that's what you're here for, lady, a boy replied, not so sure if he should laugh or not. And the hours went by slowly and people talked. Did you hear what Wallace said, someone said? He said it was a tragic and senseless act. Yes, yes, that's what he said, if he meant it or not. People laughed and an old woman said, perhaps deep down there is something good. Yes, yes, they said. And their attention drifted away to the movement in the front of the church entrance. There was a sudden applause. It's Mahalia, someone cried. Yes, Mahalia, and they applauded. Look there, there's Jackie. Where, where? I can see her. And Mrs. Kennedy caught in the crowd, could hardly reach the door, but the people on the dike caught a glimpse of her when she came to the steps of the church and moved her long hair away from her eyes. Meanwhile, McCarty, Nixon, and Rockefeller tried to find their way to the church. It remained quiet on the dike, but when Bobby tried to enter, the thousands could not restrain their emotions, shouted, clapped, and applauded him as he slowly moved through the people, pressing with outstretched arms in the direction where he was supposed to move. And then there was silence, a moment of quiet silence. The family, my neighbor whispered. Mrs. King and her children, together with other members of the family, came to the church. The crowd watched curiously, but silently, the family. Many said to themselves with a certain awe, the family, everybody knew that now the service could begin. The helicopter snoring above the church made it impossible to follow much of what came to us through the loudspeakers. It was long and hot and tiresome. I thought about those settings in the front of the TVs, able to see every moment of this historical service, but then I felt it was better to be on this dike and take the sweat and heat for a while and wait for the march to start. His last march, everybody knew it. This was what they came for, to march with him once more. They had marched in Birmingham, Selma, Montgomery, Chicago, Memphis, and many other places. He was their marcher. Marching through the cities, marching through the fields, over the highways and the side roads, marching through the desert to Jerusalem, to the top of the mountain, to the promised land. We are going to march when the spirits say march. March when the spirits say march. We are going to march. Yes, yes. That was the new song in Alabama. And he had been their leader. But there was something strange to this last march. Something new. There was no fear. No people on the sidewalks. 
ready to throw stones. It was a victory march, a march for him who had reached the mountaintop. The two mules pulled slowly the old wooden carrier with the casket. One of King's aides, dressed in blue jeans as always, guided the mules through the city. Mrs. King and the children followed. I could see the little daughter dressed like a bridesmaid holding her hands, walking the long, hot, tiring miles through the awesome city. And behind them the long river of people, hand in hand, arm in arm, coming like endless curving waves through the wide avenues of the city. Atlanta is beautiful. Her arms are white and open, her face is proud and wealthy. And now it seems that she wanted to be a host on this beautiful shining spring day for all those who came to her to honor him. Perhaps she was guilty too, but today she wanted to give her best. Sure, the governor did not join, surrounded by armed guards, he sat in his office in the Capitol building, watching the thousands pass, meanwhile receiving congratulations by telephone for his attitude. When the mayor marched, and many who would have been stoned in Montgomery followed in Atlanta, the man who now was proudly called the leader. And when I looked back over the mile behind me, I had a feeling that there was no end to this victory march, no end to the endless stream of people singing the same song again and again, we shall overcome, we shall not be afraid, black and white together. A black Negro preacher gave me his arms and asked me to join him in song, and we pulled each other forward over the long road out of the city into the quiet gardens of Morrow House Seminary. And there I sat in the grass, too tired to watch what went on on the rostrum. Many words, many songs, many exclamations. Too much to absorb and understand. I wanted to be alone and sitting on the ground surrounded by the countless people standing around me. I felt safe and protected and even liked by the black man who smiled when I woke up from a deep sleep. I felt exhausted, hungry and heavy. The long, hot day had burned me and the final march broken me. But a strange satisfaction went through my body, experiencing that this was where I wanted to be, hidden, anonymous, surrounded by black people. It had been a long, restless trip since that Thursday night, nervous, frantic, yearning and filled with anger, grief and frustration but it had led me to Morehouse. And here I rested, carried by people who kept singing and praying, and I knew that out of my exhaustion a new face could grow, a face that it is possible to love. And while they carried away his body and started to move away from me, I felt a new joy, reassured that tomorrow was a new day with a new promise. Well, that's the report. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope this report read by Henry Nowen himself has been a blessing to you. If you enjoyed it, please share it with those that you think will also be inspired by it. For more resources related to today's podcast, click on the links on the podcast page of our website. You can find additional content, book suggestions, and other additional material including a link to books to get you started in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nowen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.